Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, defining happiness and success, all the big questions for work and life. My name is Graham Olcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to Max Dickens. Max is the author of a book called Improvise, Use the Secrets of Improv to Achieve Extraordinary Results at Work. And we talk improvisation, of course. We also talk about his love affair with Groupon, including how it led him to change his name and some of the other jobs that he has done, which include being a stand-up and a radio presenter and an author and a playwright, amongst other things as well. So really interesting episode with lots of practical stuff, which will help you to be able to say yes and to more of the difficulties or challenges that you face in the working world. So let's get straight into this episode. I've got a few bits and bobs I want to tell you about at the end, but let's get straight into it. Here's my conversation with Max Dickens. Uh, Right, let's uh, get started. I'm here with Max Dickens. How are you? Yes, I'm great. Yeah, they're excited to be on the podcast. Cool. And we're um, kind of midweek recording this uh, just at the very start of September. Um, And we're going to talk a fair bit about your book, which is called Improvise. Mm. Um, So let's just kick off with some uh, questions just around improvisation and what that is and what that means. So you're founder of um, Hoopla Business. Yeah, I'm, I'm well, co- co- co-founder of Hoopla with a guy called Steve Rowe, but yeah, that's right. And you've done workshops on improvisation with everybody from Google to Facebook and Unilever and many others. Yeah. Um, so um, there's a brilliant story in the uh, the start of the book where you talk about your first experience of, of improv. <laughs> and I really related to it because some of the little references uh, there was actually a character called graham in there who definitely wasn't me because he's wearing a hawaiian shirt but he's shouting bunny bunny at someone else and you're like oh who are these interminably nice cheerful people yeah yeah i I totally related to that as my first experience of improv as well but um do you want to just uh give everybody just a flavor of how it started for you how did you get into improv why did you start uh, thinking about it, why was it interesting to you to investigate? Absolutely. Well, um, it, I came into it in two, for two reasons. So at the time, I was on the stand-up comedy circuits. I was a professional stand-up comedian. And a big part of that job is you have to often do a role in a, in clubs, which is emceeing or hosting. So you normally in that, you deliver some material, but you have to do a lot of crowd work and be very in the moment and spontaneous. And I just wanted to learn some skills around that. But that for me was almost the kind of rational intellectual cover story for what I realized in hindsight, as I wrote my book was a much deeper emotional need, which was around give being confident, but but confident without having control, which I think is such a a lovely thing to have in life. And I think confidence might even be the wrong word. I think it's freedom. So freedom from your internal monologue, freedom from the need to please others, freedom uh, from fear. And so those were the two things I wanted to get out of improv. So I just attended a workshop, some a, a dropping class that I found online uh, that was run by Steve Rowe, who since became my business partner in a very improvisational act. <laughs> and um, yeah, and as I did it, I just fell in love with it. And I thought this is absolutely transformational. 
And, you know, you, you mentioned it in your intro there, Graham, about how it's easy to be cynical about it. And to be honest, I'm, I'm intuitively that guy. <laughs> I'm intuitively taking the mickey um, a little bit suspicious of arty farty flim flammy things not in a necessarily closed-minded way I just maybe I come at it in a too rational perspective but I was just blown away I came expecting to hate it and by the end I was absolutely in love with it and it, it really has changed my life and as I've worked with other people I've really seen it how they've changed how it's how they've used the concepts the ideas to change theirs and so that's what the book's about really is is sharing these concepts and applying them to the stuff we do every day and in terms of how we can use improvisation in everyday life i mean obviously we're in this you know really unique and interesting time challenging time around covid and economic recovery and all of this sort of stuff and i suppose a lot of people will be thinking about improvisation as simply a thing that might provide some helpful exercises for team building. Mm. Right. But I mean, the mindset of improvisation is much more than that. So just give us a sense of how you think improvisation can really help with establishing a new normal, dealing with a new normal, changing business models, uh, you know, adapting your team, all that sort of thing. Like how can improvisation really help uh, people as as managers and professionals and um, just in their work yeah so um, I think it's useful maybe to start with with what what I define improvisation as so on a very simple level improvisation is acting without a script now obviously the words in that sentence there we normally associate improvisation with being on stage so comedy theater some people think of the think of jazz but we act without a script in life all the time so it it seems sensible to get good at that. And into, you, you mentioned COVID and the new normal. What what the scripts have gone? They've they've burnt in our hands. The roles we used to play may not exist. The lines that we learnt maybe not as relevant to really stretch this analogy. And what improv does for me is it's about your relationship with change, and it re- to, it, it's a way of thinking about how we deal with change every day. So what I, the very simple way I express it is when a change happens, we go through a, a loop. First, we have to notice it. And that seems quite easy, but actually it's really hard because we bring, firstly, often a not a very well-developed skill set of listening. We bring uh, perhaps a load of cognitive biases that is looking for things that already uh, confirm what we believe or are the status quo. So that the first thing is noticing the change. Then we have to, to respond to it. We have to let go of our existing plan and surrender control over that. And that's pretty difficult because we often have you know, a lot of sunk costs in that, whether that be energy, our own ego, uh, literally money and resources. And part of the letting go process is also reframing it. So in improv, we go, right, well, what's the offer here? What can I accept and build off to make this work? And that's a central part of what we're, what everyone's doing at the moment, I think, in every business is firstly with the noticing part going, right, I'm really clear on the situation as is completely honestly. I've let go of the plan. I've reframed the situation to find the positives um, and then making decisions. So improv is a lot about making choices under 
limited amounts of information. And we're, we're very anti that. We like to know exactly what's going to happen. But improvisers really try and make decisions so that they can learn about their environment. And making lots of decisions quickly is a, a way to learn about it rather than having to plan it intimately. So notice, let go, decide. And then the final part is is obviously acting on that decision or communicating it to other people. And then you're right back to start of that loop. So it's every change that comes up, notice, let go, decide, communicate. And when you think of it in those terms, improvisation is actually something we do in almost every moment of the day. And not just in dealing with COVID, but also in, in, in communication. Communication is inherently improvisational and all those things apply in, in this conversation, for example. So I think most people would look at those different stages, you know, noticing, responding and letting go, making decisions, acting on, upon it. And they'll mm. say, yeah, I do that in my life all the time. And those are inherently useful skills and useful things. But how can people get better at that? Do you think it's a muscle that you can learn and, and develop to become better at, at making those decisions and better at responding and, and so on? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that is, you, the, there is exposure therapy that helps you get better at it. But what I would say is, is I, th- I think there's a big difference in theory and practice with people. So on the, on the surface level, the kind of that simple loop, it, it is simple. It's, it seems almost common sense and people might say, I do it. But often they're unaware of patterns that are blocking them hmm. in doing that really effectively. And, and fundamentally, it comes down to, um, to self-awareness. And that's one of the beauty of, beauties of an improvisational workshop is that these little exercises, improv tends to be taught in exercises, and I include a lot of them in the book. But these exercises, what they do is they bring you face to face in the gap between the theory that you think you do and the practice of what you actually do. And you go, Oh, I'm actually not doing these things as well as I think. I mean, the most fundamental one that comes up again and again is listening. People think, Oh yeah, I listen well. And Oh yeah, I get it. I meant, I meant to listen. But then when you put them through a series of exercises or you dissect what good listening is, they realize, Oh wow, I really don't listen well at all. I think I probably found that from from doing some improv classes myself mm. is just how, yeah, just there's such a difference, isn't there, between thinking that you're listening and, you know, just on that surface level of reality, you think, oh, I'm, I'm probably fine in the way that I'm listening. And that sense when you do improv of being really deeply present and in the moment and just absolutely kind of holding everything that's that's going on. And I definitely have found that when I've been doing improv regularly, which I have to say I'm out of the habit of for a little while, but when I've been doing it regularly, you do notice feeling that same sensation around listening just in business meetings or like with your partner or mm-hmm. with your family or whatever. You know, you can really, you can really feel the, the difference there in terms of that, that kind of deep level of listening. Yeah. And that real connection and level of intimacy that you get established with another person when you do that. So just to fill fill everyone in, so the way improvisers talk about listening is 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 a little bit different to how we tend to talk about it in business and in life. So, lots of people have gone on active listening courses at work, and often active listening is about how you 
how you behave when the other person is speaking. It's a lot about nodding and making the right faces and going mm, and saying yes, and maybe a bit of paraphrasing thrown in there. But really, how do you know someone is genuinely listening to you? It's, it's what they do with what you've said. Right. So we define listening as the willingness to be changed. So when you speak to me, your words should land on me and change my response. And not only does that hopefully create stronger rapport between me and you, but it allows us to co-create ideas together and actually get to a level of connection that we wouldn't have got to otherwise. And, and I think it's to go back to your question just before this, this is for me why improv is, is simple but complex at the same time is that listening is not just about the skill of listening. It's also about the emotional blockers we bring to that that stop us doing it. So this is for me another central benefit of improvisation and, and the practice of it is the awareness of when we get our in our own way with our own patterns. So for example, with listening, we often don't listen because we're bringing ego to it. So we want to make sure the other person knows that we know what we're talking about or we bring fear. So we're worried we're not going to get um, through what we want to say or, or um, we're losing control of the conversation. So really it's these emotional blockers that when we're aware of them in our interactions with other people, with the world, with ourselves, it frees us up to behave and, and act with more spontaneity. And that's what you're saying before when you talk about this loop and you were talking about the self-awareness mm. um, part of it and how, you know, actually those are very simple things, but becoming aware of like, you know, how you're thinking, how you're responding, how you're listening, all those kind of things that you, you do notice that kind of inner monologue gets in the way of everybody, yeah. you know, uh, and it gets in, it gets in the way of us more than we realize, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I might throw something else in here. Just, just, um, I haven't, I haven't spoken about this on, on any interview, uh, before, but I've started doing psychotherapy. So I've started having therapy and I, I initially started doing it as part of a, another project I'm involved in at the moment. And in a quite a archetypally blokey way, I did it, <laughs> you know, for a project, not because I need it. <laughs> right, okay. Um, and I thought I'd be doing it, Graham, for about six weeks. Uh, once a week, but I've done it for, I think four or five months every week now. Yeah. And psychotherapists are amazing improvisers because they're so present to you and they're so responsive. Um, but the reason why I bring it up is, is they, what, what I realized is the number of patterns they help you, what they, what therapists do is they help identify patterns in your behavior and your life mm. and especially in your responses to other people. And I thought, wow, this is so connected to what I've just written about in this book because when these patterns are below our level of awareness, situations just happen to us and we respond and we're not even aware that they've been ineffective or that we've got the same old result that we always get. And we often blame the other person, but we don't realize the kind of the, the, the patterns we're running. I suppose that the analogy would be we're like computers who are, unaware of the software that we've got installed and yeah. therapies help me realize these patterns and in the same way improv in a slightly more everyday level helps you be aware of how you're responding to others and the patterns that come up as you do um i'm gonna ask you a question that you can totally refuse to answer if you want but oh, like, please do uh, 
is there a particular pattern that you identified through doing therapy that you've been really that it's been really helpful to find and really helpful to to work on yeah absolutely so how long is this podcast (laughs) (laughs) Um, oh, what to choose from this uh, <laughs> this sweet compendium. shop of doom? <laughs> Entirely, every sweet is bitter and disgusting. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I suppose here's a simple one. Um, uh, the other night, I came back, and me and my girlfriend uh, partner had been away for the weekend, and I'd left the light on in the flat, and we came in. And she just raised her eyes at me and sort of pointed at the lights and went, oh, you've left the light on again. And I responded, I got very irritated by that and really, really overreacted. And when I said this to the therapist, we explored other times I've reacted in similar ways. So like fairly recently, I left a beer bottle in the freezer (laughs) and it exploded. (laughs) And then obviously my girlfriend was irritated at this and I got really defensive and really annoyed again. And I'm not proud of any of this behavior. Then the pattern was, well, I really don't like being made to feel like a child. And I also don't like people knowing exposing secrets and mistakes Mm. and that you know might go back to childhood and this isn't like a massive big deal we get on really well me and my partner but i suddenly went oh yeah i don't every time that happens i react in the same way and in my head i'm not aware of that pattern until now and in and in the same way my partner maybe is not aware that sometimes she may respond to me in the parental role to use a a phrase from transaction analysis your child parent or adult ideally we're both adults in the interaction right yeah and becoming aware of that went oh so so that's an example of going people often say oh um i really lost my rag i'm sorry but they won't go to the next level of analysis which is right well what are your buttons though why did you lose your rag and how could you have responded differently and i think it's that awareness of that's just below the level of consciousness, that pattern, which really helps you just have better communication with every single person you come across. Yeah. I, I did um, a fair amount of therapy a few years ago. And I, I think it's one of those things that if you're listening to this and you've not done it, it will be beneficial. Cause I was probably similar to you. I didn't necessarily think it was going to have a huge, um, you know, transformational effect, but and also the other interesting thing is, do you find that I, I used to find that the weeks when I would show up with really nothing to say or talk <laughs> about and not think about, you know, I just, I yeah. just had no idea how it was going to start and what was going to be the point of being there. They were always the most transformative weeks and the weeks that I turned up yeah. saying, I want to fix this one thing. I'm going to bring that to my therapist. You'd, you'd kind of not get so far. Did you find that? Yeah, I yeah, I, I did. I, I think I, I had a very similar experience to yours in that there would be some weeks where I'd have nothing to say or like, oh, nothing went wrong this week or, <laughs> you know, there's been no yeah. disasters. And I'd be, I'd, I'd say to the therapist, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, should we just knock it on the head? I mean, do we need to? <laughs> and she was like, no, no, this is a, a process. And then like you say, I mean, lo and behold, something you think is nothing turns out to be, oh, yeah, that's another thing. 
There is a slight danger, I think, in therapy as well. I, I, I'm a big believer in it and 100% would recommend anyone does it in, in, any, in any field for any reason. There is a danger I find with therapy that sometimes almost every moment of life becomes, I don't even know this is a, is a, is a verb, but therapized. How do you mean? I think, I think it's very useful to analyze your behavior and your life and have a level of self-awareness as we've spoken about. And, and as my therapist put it, with awareness becomes choice. If you're not aware mm. of the patterns, you have no choice and you can't change your behavior. So that's a really inspiring, empowering idea. And I think it's so useful. There's also a danger that if you overanalyze every moment, every conversation and, and go towards the direction of anxiety or neuroticism, that you can be taken out of the moment and almost um, worry that your whole life is pathologically... Um, flawed in some way I, I don't know if i've communicated that idea clearly i suppose the other end of that spectrum from saying with awareness comes choice mm. is something where you get you know can you get to such a sense of over analysis or over awareness that the choices kind of fall away yeah because you end up just being stuck in your own head analyzing everything do you yeah. know what i mean yeah, yeah. so maybe that's uh yeah, maybe that's the cautionary tale. But I think most people are so far down the spectrum towards the other end, me included, um, that, you know, always a bit more self-awareness and, sure. and, and a bit more having someone hold up a mirror to you and show you those patterns is, for most people, it's really helpful to kind of shunt you along a little bit more towards greater self-awareness, I'd imagine. Yeah, and to psychoanalyze myself just then, my therapist would say, oh, there you are, Max, over-intellectualizing everything. <laughs> well there you go so let's let's get into some practical stuff yeah. um around the book then so um having 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 studied a lot of improv comedy and i've actually had a couple of improvisers on the show before so Ooh, um great who have you yeah, had um people who you who i'm sure you would know so heather urquhart has been on before uh, Liz Peters has been on before. Good old Liz yeah um and uh Rachel Paris who at that point was um uh, a very little known comedian. I'm sure being on Busy is what, you know, propelled her career into superstardom and the mass report and, yes. and everything else. I'm looking um, forward to being on Mot the Week then, Graham. That's great. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, so ha having done a fair bit of improv myself, and I'm sure we'll put the, the links to those episodes in the show notes as well, if you want to check that out at getbeyondbusy.com. Um, but yeah, the, one of the, the sort of key tenets of improv is the idea of yes and. Yeah. Do you want to talk for someone who's unfamiliar with that? Just talk about how uh, how yes and works and how does it work in business? Yeah, sure. So uh, yes and is sort of the big big underlying idea of of most of improvisation, and it's a, it's a simple concept that allows improvisers on stage to build scenes, sketches, ideas very quickly, and it's based on this premise that if I say something, say a line. So if I say, for example. Um, ah, you've delivered me the milk, say. If you're my scene partner, you would go, uh, yes, I've delivered you the milk and uh, I've thrown in a little treat for you there um, on the side just for free, winky face. Okay, something like that. So I've accepted the milk idea and I've added something to it. And now we've got a situation which we can build on. And this helps us to be very uh, effective in, in building scenes when we haven't got anything planned at all. 
offstage, this is really useful, I would say, in probably two main ways. The first thing is in, is in a creative situation where you're trying to create an abundance of ideas so you can find an innovative solution. And that, if you look at most of the research into creativity, and I cover a lot of it in the book, creating volumes of ideas and coming up with lots of solutions is a key aspect of finding an original solution. So yes, and is a great mindset to bring into a brainstorm situation, a meeting, if you want to come up with lots of ideas. So accepting and building off other ideas, which in the business world can often be uh, anathema to a lot of people. So because people bring status into the room, they bring expertise. And what we tend to do in creative situations is criticize and shoot down ideas as soon as they emerge. Not only does this mean that new, fresh ideas get killed before we've developed them, it also means we create an emotional culture in the room where people don't want to pitch their ideas. And the sum uh, outcome of this is that we're, we're leaving a lot of ideas on the table and we're being less creative. So that's one application. Yeah, and you talk in the, in the book, there's a, there's a story where you talk about someone who suggests... Um, presenting the project in the form of video and that would be the first time that that's been done and then their boss says oh who do you think you are steven spielberg <laughs> and then it's like you know if you if that's happened to you once or twice or three times that's probably enough for you to stop contributing more risky ideas right and so yeah absolutely that, yeah. that, that culture of innovation has to be fostered by you know be by everybody being open to ideas that feel outside of the normal realm of possibility, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it can seem a bit flimsy. I'm sure, sure. How does that one interaction make a difference? But the but cultures are built through these minor interactions. Mm. They, when you add them all together, that's the culture of the place. And again, we talked about self-awareness. It's about why are we saying no to ideas? Often we're saying no as an unconscious reaction to uncertainty or because we're bringing habits of thought of what we've done before or we're afraid of risk, and we're not bringing a, a mindfulness to our disagreement. So clearly in life, we have to say no sometimes, and criticism is is very useful to to any creative process. I'm, I'm sure you found with your books, the first draft is written in a very yes-and mode, and the second draft is, is written with a much more critical eye, and you're really beating up ideas and, and editing them down. Where people go wrong in life, and again, it's a fairly simple principle, is that they mix up these two modes of how we might describe as divergently thinking, so a yes and mode, and then convergently thinking where we're being much more critical. If you mix them up in a group setting or even with your own individual creative work, you end up making progress slower and getting to less original solutions. I love the quote in the book as well. Um from Keith Johnston. Oh, yeah. Uh, he says, there are people who prefer to say yes, and there are people who prefer to say no. Those who say yes are rewarded by the adventures they have. Those that say no are rewarded by the safety they attain. Yeah, yeah I really love that. Yeah, it's great. I mean, Keith Johnston is, is a real, for people who don't know, is one of the absolute pioneers of improvisation in the UK, if not the world. And he's he's got a book about stage improvisation, which is wonderful for anyone to read and i i do refer to a lot of his ideas and so, no, he's great but i think it's a wonderful way to live so not just a technique so a good example of that quote in action graham i think was when you asked me that question about therapy i mean it's something i hadn't been asked i hadn't been 
asked before and I could easily have said, actually, I'm a little bit uncomfortable answering that or said no. Yeah. But then I wouldn't have got the chance to explore that idea with you. So really, I think it's adventures, as he says, I can't put it any better than Keith Johnston. Adventures lie on the other side of yes. So thinking about yes and from a practical point of view then, so how can people... Uh, like, do you re- are there exercises and things that you can recommend for people if you're about to do, let's say, a brainstorming process or a kind of ideation process for something in in the business mm. or in your team or whatever? Are there exercises that you'd recommend that would just get people into that headspace that you know people can do with their team? Yeah. So in a moment, I might we might do an exercise together, Graham, me and you, on this, um, which would be a, which will illustrate the concept in more detail for people. In, in terms of applying it in your teams, I think that the simplest thing to do is to um, separate, I, I call it in the book, separate out the phases. And it's a very simple thing where you say to people what you expect of them in that meeting. So you're going to say to them, right, here's the problem we're trying to solve. For 20 minutes, we're just going to be in a yes and mode. We're going to try and come up with as many ideas as possible. We're going to go for volume. And then at the end of that 20 minutes, we're going to be much more critical and we're going to pick the top three answers and really look at how we develop these. And when you communicate that to your team, the more analytical, critical-minded people who are very useful in teams, we don't want everyone to be the same, but they relax and go, right, I'm going to get my chance to be more analytical, data-driven, however you want to express that approach in a moment. And I can go all in on this yes and approach first. So it's just a communication job of separating out the phases and letting people know that all these, often some of them will be a bit mad ideas, we will have a chance to get rid of them before we kind of narrow down our selection. A simple way of doing that, and then in the spontaneity chapter, I come up, there's loads of exercises in there that you can do alone or with teams. I mean, one of them is just making it a bit of a game. So you set a, a tight deadline. And what a deadline does is it it shuts your inner critic up because you know you've got to get a certain job done in a certain amount of time. You haven't got time to overthink it or criticize yourself. And you put a target number of ideas. So an exercise we often do in corporate workshops, for example, would be set a brief and go, you need 50 solutions in five minutes. And then after that, we go, right, bring back the critic and pick your top three. And what's interesting is, you know, their top three ideas are never in the first 25. And then I ask them, well, you know, how often are you getting more than 20 solutions for a problem? And they they say, well, never, because we spend so long on the first three and beat them to death as they come out. So, I mean, that's a simple way you could apply it literally in a meeting. Um, In terms of an exercise to get people in 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 the mindset of it, Maybe me and you, Graham, could do a quick exercise now. Sure. And then people can borrow this and you can just do it as a as an icebreaker in a meeting as well. It works really well. It's pretty simple. So here we go. Good fun doing this uh, remotely as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, and we can't see each other as we do this. We're, <laughs> we're relying totally on the audio part here. Yeah. Zoom. So we're going to plan a party, me and you, Graham. And first, we're going to do it in a way that is not very productive. And we'll just hopefully see that the result we get is not massively useful. So we're going to take it in turns to pitch ideas for a party um, and we'll respond to each other's ideas with yes, but, and then fill in the gap. 
So, for example, it might be, hey, we should have cocktails. Yes, but a lot of people don't drink. And we'll do that for 20 seconds or so, and then we'll see the result we've got. And then we're going to do the yes and version, and hopefully everyone will see the difference. Does that make sense? Cool. Let's do it. All right. Uh, Do you want to pitch an idea first, Graham, or I'm happy to go first? Uh, Let's plan a jungle-themed party. Yes, but um, jungle-themed parties, I mean, it just sounds very expensive. I mean, we're going to have to get all sorts of plants in, are we, to dress up the room? Uh, Okay. I mean, so, yeah, but I don't – I think it's just going to be too expensive. So instead, why don't we just rent out a barn and we can have a band on in there and it's pretty straightforward. Yes, but barns are really difficult to rent out because of all the COVID restrictions and everything. It's not too easy to – uh, to get those kind of spaces at the moment. Yes, but do you want people who are that worried about that at the party anyway? Yes, but a lot of the people who are most concerned about COVID are actually my really good friends. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I hated myself when I said that COVID thing, sorry. Um, anyway, you get the point. Like, even when we know this is a game and it's kind of already a bit like, bloody hell, this is hard work. And we're not getting anywhere. It, it sucked the joy out of the party pretty quickly. Sucked yeah. it out. And I don't yeah. want to be going to, I don't want to plan this party. It's not an interesting party. And again, some of the criticisms about things like budget and stuff, you know, maybe those are going to be actually useful questions to, to ask. But if we ask them straight away, we don't get any, any lateral movement in our thinking. And we don't come up with any really interesting solutions at all. So instead, we're going to plan a party again. This time, we're going to say yes and. So I'm going to accept on your accept your idea and add something to explore or heighten it. So we're not trying to just come up with a shopping list. We're trying to see, right, what can I use here in what I've been given by the other person? I'm going to delay judgment, which is a big idea in improvisation. I'm going to suspend judgment for a moment and play and explore this idea with you. You'll do the same to me and we'll see where, where we end up. Um, okay, so uh, let's start. So, um, all right, well, I'll, I'll, I'll pitch an idea and then you yes, yes and it and I'll do the same to you and we'll go to and from. All right. So um, I think cocktails are essential at this party. Yes, and there are a whole bunch of new cocktails that people are starting to talk about. We can, we can have a party that's all about fashionable new cocktails. Yes, uh, people are very... Uh, excited about new cocktails and what's great about cocktails is that they're such a good icebreaker i always think on dates cocktails is a good one because you can talk about the ingredients and what you're going to choose so it's a good way of maybe breaking the ice at the start of the party yes and we can have part of our theme or we can have a room which is called the icebreaker room where (laughs) we have like Mr. Frosty crushed up ice as part of cocktails. <laughs> yes. And in the icebreaker room, we've got to have a vodka luge, surely, because it's, uh, it would be made of ice. And maybe we can even do it in the image of, um, of the guest of honor. Yes. And we'll have some people serving the vodka with Russian hats on. <laughs> yes. And surely a Russian sort of Oompa Loompa band, if that is even the way of putting it. Okay. So w- w- you kind of get the point. Now, that sounds like a much better party, doesn't it? Much better. And <laughs> look, some of those ideas were a bit wacky. That's probably people might be thinking, going like, there's a lot of that stuff we wouldn't do. And you'd be right. But what we're doing here is we're giving ourselves a chance to create a breadth of ideas and get to places we wouldn't have got to with linear thought. And we certainly would have got to if we had a situation where we didn't want to pitch ideas. So there's all sorts of 
interesting stuff we might pick out of that and then develop it so that it was more functional. So I really like the the Russian hats idea. It suddenly thinks like, oh, well, what could we do to make this a lot more themed and a lot more sort of fancy dressy or a way of how do we dress the rooms? Like you can abstract from that and make it um, much more applicable. So the, yeah, and, and, the, and a great thing about yes and is how it slows down your thinking. So I don't know, be really love to know your perspective on, on how you found using the, the, the methodology, but what it does for me is the yes slows my brain down to go rather than jumping into critical mode, which I think is a lot of our instincts mm. It's go, right. What actually is interesting here? And what can I add from my own perspective? So what we're not doing is dropping our point of view. We're just dropping our agenda so we can co-create on the same page. So how would you find your uh, experience of that technique? Yeah, I think what you said there about the slowing down thinking and kind of uh, withholding the criticism, I think is, is definitely something I've found really um, really helpful with just the, the, just the mentality of yes. And, and kind of practicing yes. And I think generally my, my style, uh, can sometimes come across as a bit abrasive sort of like in the office and, hmm. um, you know, just with teams and stuff, because I am instinctively quite a critical thinker. So someone can send me, you know, 10 pages of, um, work that they've done and I'll be like, that's great, but you've missed a bit here or there's, we need this more, you know, so I focus very much on what's wrong with it and often really gloss over the yes, which is the most of what you've done here is totally along the right lines. This is great. And I think also as someone who is more introverted than extroverted and Mm. with sort of various other traits that I have, I often sort of underrate or under underappreciate the sort of human need for that little bit of you're doing a great job because I don't kind of need that much of it myself. But some people really thrive off that, you know, you're doing a great job. Let's have more of this. Yeah. Just those really small, um, you know, little, little, little encouragements. And I think just yes. And helps you to start there rather than start with what's, you know, what's the criticism that you have that will actually make the thing better. Like there's, you know, yeah. there's a place for criticism, but it's, it's more just the ordering of these things and absolutely and just, you know, how you bring them in. So I, I think that's a really interesting analysis. So like, I think critical thinkers, I, and we can maybe talk about book editors because I think they're quite a good, it's quite a good analogy here. So yes. And so the, I, I talked about the creative applications. I think it's a nice bridge into the second application, which I didn't, mention earlier but just to close the circle of anyone's thought oh he hasn't said the second one but it's linked to what you just said which is yes and's a really good way of overcoming conflict or having more mindful and constructive conflict so we get into conflict because of emotions not because of logic often but we often communicate in a way that doesn't um accept that so what yes and does is says yes i accept you feel like this i'm not saying you're right to feel this way and here's my perspectives and here's my bridge and being the bridge into my perspective. So someone, Graham, as you say, gives you 10 pages of work. Yes. Look, there's some really good stuff here. I especially love that bit. And also wouldn't it be even better if you could rewrite that last page? Because I think you're losing the flow of the argument there, mm, for example. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I know from experience I don't know. We may even have had the same editor. I, we probably shouldn't name them, but um, 
editors are often quite good at this because they'll the first two paragraphs will be nice stuff and there may, may then be eight paragraphs of hard stuff <laughs> yeah invariably there are but you have been emotionally prepared for that and it feels much more a more constructive way of landing that feedback so again i'm not saying we become inane nodding yes men and yes women we still have our point of view it's just how do we get that across in a way that understands that the emotional triggers for people are going to stop them listening and get us into conflict yeah i did a it just reminded me of i, I did a, an improv course in london a few years ago with um jules munns and oh, katie yeah. shoot uh, who i know you know um and i think it was jules and as part of that course uh, had this phrase, uh, which I'm not sure if it was his or whether he was kind of quoting it from someone else, but it was the, the phrase is improv is a thousand tiny funerals. <laughs> and the idea was that, so, you know, you're in the middle of a scene and someone does a thing and you've got all these amazing things in your head. And then something that the other person says just means that you can't bring that idea in now. And it just isn't going to make any sense. And you just have to drop those ideas really quickly. And I think book editing is really similar where, you might have little little kind of corners of the book or little ideas in the book that you're really proud of and you just think are really uh, lovely phrases or really nice pieces of original thinking. And then your book editor goes, yeah, that's nice, but it just doesn't fit with the chapter or it's just there, there is no place for it. And so you, I, I suggest we cut this, you know. Yeah. And I think book editors, because they don't have, again, back to the, the patterns thing and the um, the you know the way we block ourselves and our own our own narratives uh, influence our decisions. You know it's much harder for us to see what's going to make a really good, well flowing book than it is for someone who has never read the book, doesn't know you, and they're just they're actually experiencing it as the reader of the book rather than the storyteller, the author of the book, or whatever. So yeah, like I think that's um, one of those things that improv really helped me with. Uh, you know, the particularly. The, I would say the writing process generally, but particularly the the editing process of of books, because you you can kind of get much more okay with the fact that yeah, that idea was lovely and I really liked it, but I'll say bye bye to it or I'll let go of it, and I might use it some other time, but it's not part of what's going to make this really good, you know. Like there's there's something nice there about just yeah, like how how you can um, honor the idea uh, without needing without your ego needing it to actually be in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, um, I had a special file uh, on my laptop called Offcuts, which was all the bits I had to chop out. And it felt like I hadn't quite deleted them because I'd put them in a, another file. But by the end, that file was as long as the finished book. So I actually had to write two books to get this. <laughs> um, and and genuinely, I, I spent forever on one section of the book. I thought was, there's an, there was an idea in it. I was like, this is, this is genius. Mm. This should be. I, this must be out there, and then the editor went, "No, this is no, this is really boring. <laughs> so we're going to lose that." But then you know, you let go of it, you reframe it, and 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 I, I think I applied a lot of the improv stuff in the rewriting of the book. But the, there's also an idea in improv about your attitude to your mistakes and when things go wrong, mm. and understanding that any creative process or any any communication process to an extent is a bit messy. You have to say yes to the mess and go what. Often the mistakes, the curveballs move your thinking in a way, again, in a linear, in a non-linear fashion, I should, should, should say, 
that get you into interesting places you never would have got to without that constraint, without that surprise, without that mistake. Yeah. And improvisers are great in that moment, as you said yourself, letting go, surrendering, having a funeral of what the plan was to address the reality and the opportunity in the moment. So it's it's sort of resilience plus. It's It's about overcoming your emotional reaction to the error, but then immediately having the optimism to reframe it and then make a decision to move forward um, in the moment. For sure. I just feel like there are so many parallels with productivity and some of the stuff that's in Productivity Ninja with what you're saying and like just even all that stuff around letting go, a lot of it is lizard brain management, right? And yeah. just, you know, how, how you deal with procrastination often is is very kind of similar processes as well. Um, let's talk a little bit about productivity then, shall we? Sure. Seeing as we're sort of segueing in. Um, so you're someone who you teach improvisation, uh, you do stand-up comedy, you've done a lot of other jobs that are um, ostensibly quite creative, you know, being a radio presenter, being an author and a playwright and so on. Um, what does what does good productivity mean to you? What are your rules for, for good productivity? Um, for me, productivity is about doing the very simple things with a boring level of consistency and <laughs> letting yourself do that. So um, for me, I, I've, I've, you know, I'm, I've, I absolutely love writing. So this is my second book, published playwright. I've done loads of other, I did, did a national tour of another play I wrote. I, I've probably, I write things all all the time. And my journey through that over the last decade is really about doing the very simple thing of getting my bum onto the seat. And again, this is not an interesting new idea. It's about, it's for me, it's about that simple discipline, blocks of time in a realistic amount of time that you're not going to be knocked off course with that. So as early as possible in the morning until for three or four hours, disciplined, no phone, uh, phone, often I'll leave it at home and go somewhere else try and get your your email application off your internet off and just dedicate that time and if you do if i do that for 3 hours every day 5 or 6 days a week for 40 weeks a year i can write a book a year um yeah but it's it's not for me the writing the being pro- productive writing and any sort of creative job is really not about talent i mean that's maybe a fraction of it it's about that very basic discipline of turning up every day for a small amount of time. Um, and it's linked to this yes and idea as well, maybe slightly. So creative people come up with lots and lots of ideas and lots and lots of work and they lose most of it. Call it kill your darlings, call it um, having an off-cut file, like I put it, however you want to say it. You come up with all double treble of what you use and that is just grunt work but the grunt work can be done in small amounts of focused time and that's all it is is where can you fit that chunk of time in how can you do it so you sit down very regularly to do it and then you'll be a successful creative i think yeah and i think that same offcuts thing is a really good productivity tip in its own right so i one of the things i talk to people about in workshops is the idea of renegotiating your commitments right so you might have something that's been on your to-do list for a little while and you've never quite got around to it but it's one of those things that stares at you every morning or every time you look at your to-do list and actually 
you know, what's really helpful to a lot of people is to just go through that to-do list and go through more, uh, importantly, your, your project list and say, am I still really committed to each of these projects? And I think we're, for whatever reason, very reticent to to renegotiate and delete things that we committed to before, even if the commitment is just to ourselves. But I think, you know, the process of that just it creates more space. It, it kind of creates more clarity around where you are committed yeah, and kind of reduces the choices that you're making all the time. So it's one of those things that I just, I think people find really helpful once they get into the habit of doing that. Yeah. So I've got a section in the book called sweep the scene, which is very similar to that idea. So in improv, if, if, if you, if you haven't seen improv before, it's a load of made up scenes, sort of mini sketches linked together normally by what's happened in the scene before um, and some of them are really brilliant. And then occasionally some of them aren't very good. And even the good ones eventually get a bit boring and you have to end them. Mm. So you sweep the scene. And the way that works in an improvised show is someone just jogs across the front of the stage. It's sort of, it's like drawing a line under it and go, right, that's finished. What's next? And what that, what that does is it allows you to move on to something fresh and having the mentality of sweeping the scene is a great thing to do in life, I think. I spoke to somebody, there's lots of case studies in the book, and I spoke to, these are all people who've done a lot of improv but have real jobs and are applying it at work. And I had someone who had serious, serious anxiety issues and had suffered from depression. And this person said one of the biggest things they took away from improv was this idea of sweeping the scene. At some point, you can stop ruminating and thinking about it, sweep the scene, and start something new. Yeah, People don't like doing that because it creates a, an empty stage, a blank page space, and we're maybe afraid of the uncertainty. But I mean, I, I think that's maybe similar to what you just said about renegotiating your projects and going, well, do I want to do this anymore? Is this productive? If I end it, I can have space for something that I'm actually going to enjoy or is going to be more um, more useful. For sure. And just to sort of tie up that analogy my experience as an amateur improviser is that 90% of scenes are ended a little bit too late. <laughs> like, oh yes. Yes. Ve- you know, and then 9% on time. And there's really only very rarely a time where you're either in improv or watching improv where you think, oh, I'd love to see a little bit more of that, you know? And, and if you do think that and you're all on stage thinking that you can just bring it back later and just, you know, do it as a callback and bring it back. But I think having that instinct to be, slightly more ruthless with your editing of your own projects and tasks. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think is, is really handy. Um, I'm going to change gears a little bit okay. and ask you about um, a thing that you did a few years ago, which I think was, was maybe part work, part hobby. You can tell me more, but your group on adventures. So if people are listening to this, who are uh, maybe a little bit younger, you might not even know what Groupon is, but there was a time probably 10 years ago where Groupon was the most high growth company in the world, yeah. right? It, it was, it was, it's, it's really easy to forget how crazy that whole Groupon phenomenon was. But you got really into Groupon um, for a little while and went on a whole bunch of adventures. So um, how, how did it come about? Well, it, it started off with heartbreak. Um, I got dumped basically by somebody I'd been gone, gone out with for ages and sort of assumed I'd, I don't know, end up getting married to or something. And uh, I realized I was sort of stuck in a rut. I was doing the same things with the same people in the same places all the time. And I just felt really like my life was flat and I wasn't, 
I wasn't living an interesting life or one that excited me. And there was also an idea that I was maybe being trapped in an identity that I hadn't chosen because if you don't have a choice, then the choice is, is not meaningful. So I felt like I had very narrow horizons and until I widened them, I couldn't be happy with the path I'd chosen. But also I just wanted to do lots of stupid things to cheer myself up. And so I used Groupon as sort of spontaneity for beginners, like a ladder out of this rut. And Groupon at the time is still still around and they still advertise on the tube and stuff. And but it was like you say yourself, Graham, it was massive 10 years ago. Yeah. You go on the website and there's all this mad stuff, all discounted. And so what you can do is just take a gamble and go, yeah, I'll spend 15 quid to have my back waxed. Why not? <laughs> I'll, I'll have a, I'll have a baby scan. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go. I uh, genuinely, I did that. Um, I'll go alpaca trekking in Kent. I'll become a, I'll become a lord. Why not? So, so I'm a lord, by the way. You should have really introduced me. You bought me. a lord title. I bought a lord title. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm lord of, um, Dunholm Castle in Scotland. I Ew. own about Don't a square. Do you ever use it? <laughs> do you know what? I've never, I've never visited it mainly because it's so far away. Um, okay. but, um, I, I tried to get a Nando's black card with it. Basically said, <laughs> look, I'm Lord Max Dickens. I, I think I'm, you know, I deserve some discounts. Yeah. I'm not like, you know, the hoi polloi that normally eat here. <laughs> um, and I did so many of these deals. I did hundreds. I went out. Uh, what else? I, did? I just said that one. I did um, uh, alligator wrestling out in the States. I did all, <laughs> all sorts. And then I managed to convince Groupon to sell a date with me on their website. So I sold a thousand dates with myself. Wow. Um, this is all absolutely real. And you, if you go on a thousand dates, they're not meaningful, right? They're, if you're date number three, you know, there's another 997 to go. There's no stakes there. And did you go on Did you do a thousand? Well, so I refunded 999. I put all my chips <laughs> on red and I went on a date with someone called Paula Seabright, who is now my fiance. Oh wow! No, not really. <laughs> She's not Aww. my fiance. Yeah, sorry. I'm sorry to spoil it. I didn't think I could lie on your podcast. But um, <laughs> we know we, we had a great time, and we went out for a bit, and then um, in the end, uh, we went our separate ways, having really had our lives, uh, you know, expanded and enlarged by the experience of meeting each other. It was great. So you sold you sold a thousand dates, and then you only went on one. Yes. Because I thought if I go on a thousand dates, I'll be having dates literally till I'm about, you know, the next decade. But there was a middle ground. You could have gone on 10. Or... I could have gone on 10. I just felt it was more romantic to go on, to go on this <laughs> one and just really put all my chips in there. And, uh, yeah, it was great. And then it ended up, I did it as a stand up show in Edinburgh, although it was a real project. It wasn't just, you know, one of these bullshit things that people do yeah. to pretend. And, uh, I just started doing it as a blog thinking other people would relate to it. And then it kind of got a bit of a cult following and I got quite a lot of press. And so I thought, well, I'll do it as a stand up show. And then it became a book as well. So that book is out. So that's, um, full of all sorts of funny stories about my, my group on adventure. But yeah, it was, um, oxygenating, oxygenating your life with new experience. That's what it's all about. And I think that's just a good mentality for, um, anyone to follow. Um, I had a couple of other things I wanted to ask you about, and I suppose this one leads on quite nicely because I wanted to ask you about work-life balance, which is obviously a huge topic on this podcast. And I suppose when you think about a lot of what you were doing there, so that becomes a stand-up show, it's a blog, it's a book, it becomes your work. But 
a lot of those things are obviously also your personal life. So yeah. do you feel like when you're doing improvisation and things like that and everything is very playful, do you feel like it blurs the boundary between what's work and what's life or play? And how do you, how do you just, how do you delineate? How do you feel about that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, I think, um, because I do a mixture of, 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 of this book, Improvise, which is um, it's aimed at a, a business reader, as well as doing all sorts of, you know, comedic and very artistic projects. And Nora Ephron says, you know, life is copy. And there's a real danger that the boundary between being creative and being alive is so mixed up that there is no boundary. And I'm... I'm, I'm working on a project at the moment, which is um, a lot, much more like memoir. And I'm faced with these questions of who owns the experience. Because often you share your life with somebody else. Do you have rights on their story? But this is just another example of how, you know, if you're not careful, there is no, there is no difference. But the way I've squared it to myself before is, I mean, I love my work so much that I don't mind work being my life. But as I'm getting older, I'm realizing that my work has taken all my best energy mm. and the people I love the most have been given my worst energy. And actually, um, again, I'll, I don't mind talking about this. I've um, engaged to be married now and I sat down to work out who would be on the wedding list from my point of view and who would be in my best man's party and that list is not very long and it's because my career has dominated for the past decade and I've not paid enough attention to to friendships and it's something I'm it's a really is a work in progress about correct correcting that and trying to find the balance. I mean, one of the hard things is in the arts is some of the best work you do is paid the worst. So you're almost doing it for free. Often you are doing it for free. But is that work or is that not work? Because it's unpaid, but it's really would be in the category of work for most people. Mm. So it is a tough equation, but it's, uh, it's something I'm I'm really, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm doing, trying to get better at it myself, to be honest. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And I suppose it's slightly different when you're creating interesting stuff out of experiences in your life, like you would in stand-up or indeed in improv, you know, um, just taking the things that you've, that you've experienced and, and, and making that part of a story or something else. Versus if you're a YouTuber and you're having to document moments in your day i suppose the difference because a lot of youtubers end up very depressed and have breakdowns and all that sort of thing particularly the younger ones and i think maybe that's partly to do with the fact that for someone like you you can you can enjoy a moment for the sake of it being that moment and then document it later whereas yeah if you're a youtuber then it's kind of you know it's all it's all in one space isn't it and so there is <laughs> yeah naturally just less separation there i guess i do i do often find i'm i'm a protagonist and a spectator in my life simultaneously where <laughs> right. you're sort of 70 percent there and 30 percent going oh this might be a funny story or <laughs> or i must remember what i'm thinking in this moment i think it's quite relatable <laughs> yeah. um, but that's i think that's one reason why i love improv so much is that when i'm on stage or when i'm working with people uh, in a workshop or when I'm trying to listen like an improviser and like I hopefully have done on this podcast today, 
I feel so present and it is my version of meditation and it is really about mindfulness and being present. And so that's why I like it so much, I think, is I, I in those moments I'm away from that kind of mindset of permanent finding copy everywhere. And I think that's probably a really good note to uh, finish up the conversation because I think most things are improved by being more present and being mindful. Um, certainly, certainly improv has helped me to uh, discover that and practice that and be more aware of that. But yeah, absolutely. Um, just that's a really good, uh, nice way to end it. So the book is called Improvise, Use the Secrets of Improv to Achieve Extraordinary Results at Work. Um, so tell everyone where they can get the book and also just how they can connect with anything else that you want to um, tell us about. Yeah, sure. So Improvise, use six of improv to achieve extraordinary results at work. It's available in bookshops, uh, believe it or not. And it's also available on Amazon. Improvisethebook.com is the website. Um, so if you want to visit there, there's some bonus content and say hi on LinkedIn. So my name is spelled M-A-X-D-I-C-K-I-N-S. If you want to add me on there and ask me anything at all about this stuff, I'd really love to hear from you. And uh, yeah, it, it really it really changed my life. And I'm not just saying that in a way of trying to flog books. I'm a big believer in it. And so if you want me to tell you where your local improv place is, then I'd be very happy to help you out. Yeah, it's a lovely community, isn't it? And yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's all very well networked. So yeah. I'm sure you'll you'll push people wherever they are in the right direction. Absolutely. Um, thanks so much for being on the podcast, Max. It's been great. Thanks, Graham. Thanks for asking me some uh, great probing questions. So thanks to Max for being on the show. Thanks also as ever to Mark Stedman, my producer on the show. Uh, to Emily, my assistant, for her help with the episodes, and also to Ruth Killick for helping to set up this episode as well. Um, one thing I want to just let you know about is I, for a little while um, in 2020, have been running this Sunday night email list. It's called Rev Up for the Week. And the idea is every Sunday I put some thoughts of productivity or positivity into your inbox ready for the week ahead. So since I started, I started from scratch and since I've started it, it's been growing steadily. We're now at over 700 people, would you believe? And um, I'm actually really loving the process of it. One thing I love about it is that it's really forcing me to produce something that's half decent every single week to a deadline. And that's just a good discipline in itself. I kind of feel myself uh, just finding the writing easier, just getting better at my writing as I'm doing that. And that's standing me a good, in good stead for uh, the next little phase of things, which is to be writing a new book. Um, the book, I'm not going to say too much about on this episode, but it's all to do with leadership. And I'm going to say a little bit more uh, over the coming weeks. Uh, but yeah, suffice to say, rev up for the week every Sunday. I've been getting some really lovely um replies and responses to the email every week, which really helps to keep me going in writing it. And it's just been a really good process. So if you want to be part of Rev Up for the week, all you have to do is just go to graymalcott.com. And from there, you can just put in your uh, details. There's a little form on every page of the website where you can put in your details and be part of that week. And you just hear from me every Sunday on email. The other thing I want to just mention is, of course, our sponsors for the show, which is Think Productive, my company. So if you're interested in productivity, training and coaching, 
then go to thinkproductive.co.uk or thinkproductive.com if you're elsewhere in the world. And finally, if you want more about the podcast, if you just head to getbeyondbusy.com, you'll find the show notes from this episode, links to all the previous episodes as we close in on our hundredth episode, which I'm very excited about. We've got some big plans for, and uh, that's coming up uh, shortly after Christmas. We've got a whole load in the bag, as always keen to get your thoughts on who else should be on this podcast. So graham at thinkproductive.co.uk if you want to suggest any future guests. Had some really good suggestions over the last few months, actually, that we have acted on and are uh, in the pipeline to be on the podcast. So um, yeah, don't think that just me putting my email on there is just a gimmicky thing. I do actually act on them and some of them are going to be on the show. So if you want to suggest some people, graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. And that's it. We'll be back with another episode in a week's time. So until then, take care. Bye for now. 